protecting our planet from potential asteroids. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thursday marks World Asteroid Day, a UN-sanctioned campaign to raise awareness of the scientific opportunities and planetary threats posed by asteroids. So we're taking this week's episode to explore asteroids, the efforts to study them and track them to make sure they don't slam into our planet. First, we'll start here on Earth. We'll speak with a planetary scientist about efforts to identify and track these asteroids using ground-based telescopes before they become a threat to us here on Earth. Then we'll talk with a policy advocate calling for more funding for a space-based telescope to map our sky and track potential cosmic rocks on a collision course with our planet. Protecting our planet from a catastrophic asteroid encounter, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. There are more than 30,000 asteroids that we know of. And while space is big, and there are few of these asteroids that pose a threat to us here on Earth, there's still a risk one might strike the planet. Major extinction events like the one that killed the dinosaurs some 66 million years ago are thought to be caused by asteroid impacts. And while we're still working on solutions to deflect one on a collision course with Earth, identifying these things is the first step in prevention. Planetary scientist Luisa Fernando Zambrano Marin is on the hunt for these asteroids, and she's using ground-based telescopes to spot them in the sky. One of those telescopes is the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. And while the main dish and antenna recently collapsed, she's still using data collected from previous observations to track these objects, and recently published an academic article about the finding of asteroid 2019-OK. Zambrano Marin joins us now from Puerto Rico to discuss those tracking efforts. If you look at the history from like the 70s and to 90s, there were a lot of discoveries. And we went, I was just reading a paper for, for my next paper, and, and they were saying like where we found 40 fast rotators uh, yeah. out of, you know, the known 1800 NEOs. This is like 1990 and some 1990s. Right now, yeah. the near or the database has more than 35,000 objects. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, Congress passed a resolution many years ago where um, it mandated NASA to find all the objects that are larger than 140 meters and all the, you know, the objects, less, I mean, on the kilometer size and all the objects that are, you know, smaller that could have a, a threat to not only the planet as a whole, but if it impacted civil um, urban areas, it could it could be catastrophic. Catastrophic. So following that, they've sponsored and they sponsored like a program, uh, programs in in JPL and in surveys like Sonar and, and Catalina Sky Survey. And right now, we found pretty much all of the ones we could that are there that are understanding that are there. We find we feel studying the population that we found pretty much all of the ones that are really big, like on the kilometer size, but. On, we're still lagging and we still have some, quite a few, but we don't know how many we're missing, right? Of, of the smaller ones because they're, they could be formed by collisions or, or they just spin out of the other body, whatever. Um, so those are the ones we're, we're lacking on. And we don't know, we say we have like 90%, but we don't know if that's really accurate of our, of our knowledge of how many we're missing. Uh, and, and, and we discover more every day because we have surveys, dedicated surveys to do this. So that's good. But the long and short is just knowing where, where these are is, is half the battle and, and very important in protecting our planet, right? 
Exactly. So we can know also where you come from. Like, I don't know if you, you've heard about meteor showers. They happen very often. So these meteor showers are literally rocks falling into the atmosphere. And the thing is that they're not big enough to survive. Not all of them are big enough to survive the landing. Most of them are pretty small so that as they're coming in, they're coming so fast that they burn themselves in the atmosphere. I don't know if you've seen a re-entry of a spaceship, um, like the shuttle or Orion, whichever. Um, you can see the heat, right, on, on the heat shield. Because you're coming so fast that it's burning. It's 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 uh, evaporating in the atmosphere. And they leave traces of minerals, of materials, of what they were made of. Um, the upper parts of the atmosphere are not dense as in molecule composition, like lower. That's why we can breathe, because we have a lot of air. Up there is mostly, mostly like loose ions and loose electrons. So that's something that RC will also study, uh, the upper parts of the atmosphere. So all those are just meteor showers that come from parent bodies. Like we know, the geminates come from Phaethon which is an asteroid we also observed our seal. Uh, and like that, we're, we're kind of trying to understand the parent bodies of these meteor showers. Um, you're not putting my mind at ease at all during this conversation. Um, but so thank you for that. <laughs> but, but no, but it, it just goes to show just how important all this is and, and to really identify all of these things. I, you mentioned something about how um, satellite constellations are making it e even more difficult to make these observations. Um, what's the outlook on that is is this going to get worse or, or is the only way to kind of mitigate some of the challenges with these satellite constellations is moving your telescopes to space is that is that going to be the next step that would be amazing well we do have the james webb and uh and and neo wise hopefully very soon um well i'm not the feeling optical uh right now i'm not doing optical astronomy and planetary sciences so i don't know the state of the art our technology for my gathering and from the feeling of the community is that even though you have like the manifesto and the list of where all of them are at any given time, they're still going to corrupt your data because if the trace is passing right where the point is, like this is your trace and your object is right here, you will not see it. You will not see it. So I don't know, maybe we need to ask ourselves if really having a constellation, like doing this net around the world when we have millions of pieces of orbital debris orbiting the earth and it's pretty much you know a gigantic trash center uh you can see it as a beehive right around earth right now like it's hundreds of thousands of objects that are there uh and and when when people from certain faiths talk about the, the apocalypse the end of times and it, and it says fireballs raining from the sky and things like that i see satellites falling <laughs> I'm like, me too now. Yeah, I can, me too. I can see that. I can sort of see that. Like, <laughs> like not to mention that all the things when you deorbit them, they land. They have a designated satellite graveyard in the Pacific Ocean. You know, okay. and they're talking about deorbiting uh, um, the, the International Space Station. That would be, and I we can do a separate thing about this because I can, <laughs> I can Rick Tomlinson and me sitting down and talking about that. <laughs> yeah, but going back to to the asteroid. In 2019, okay, I was mentioning to you, like, when they come in, they they can dissociate, they can break up, right? So mm -hmm. We are the first, we are the point of civilization that we are the first species that could actually prevent um, um, a natural disaster if we know ahead of time, of course, that the asteroid is coming because we could deflect it. So the deflection technique will be different if it's, you're talking about, like, a solid 
ball, like, you know, imagine um, a billiards ball, right? Your reflection technique for that will be different than if you're talking about a palm stone, like what you used to, you know, scrub your, your hands off. Um, so it's important that we know what they're made of. And using planetary radar, we can have insights on what they are and the physical characteristics. So, for example, for 2019, okay, we are able to determine, oh, my God, it's rotating super fast. In five minutes, it did a, five to eight minutes, it did a rotation. That has implications uh, by what we understand of physics. An object can only rotate so fast before it breaks apart. So whatever it's made of cannot be fluffy or fluffy because it will break, break apart. Um, so then there's a field of understanding, okay, so maybe they're monoliths. They're like what we call monoliths, like somewhat more solid, more cohesive. And if that's the case, then it could uh, help us understand, you know, maybe these were products of collisions that, you know, took out a whole chunk of it. And, and by the orbit, you can kind of trace things and understand. But most importantly, being able to know the physical properties, how big it is, how yeah. fast it's rotating. And then our seawall was so precise. Like I told you, 2019 OK was coming at 24 kilometers per second. We corrected the orbit of it by a precision of two meters per second. So about 24 kilometers per second, we're able to do an order of magnitude more precision on their measurement, which we do what with, we've done with the thousand, over 1,000 objects we have, 1,300 objects we have in our database, produce astrometric corrections. So those are like the addresses. I don't, I don't know if, if you're familiar with this topic. It's kind of like the GPS coordinates of where the object is in space. And as it's moving, it's changing. So you know that how accurate that is, right? It's going to be somewhere between here and there. But with the radar measurement, we can tell you, boom, it's right there. And it's moving yeah. at that speed. And our margin of error is like super, as Well, I'm glad there's there's um, smart people like you tracking these things. So thank you for that. <laughs> One thing I, I do I do find really fascinating with your finding um, is that this was done with, with Arecibo data. Um, and as we know, Arecibo is not functioning anymore, but it still is playing a role in, in this kind of research, right? Can you explain how you're using Arecibo despite it not making active observations right now? So our observations, um, we, were the we were the only research group, Arecibo has three research groups, space atmospheric sciences, um, astronomy, and, and planetary radar. So we were the only group whose instruments, we had to do it by hand. So we were literally moving cables to change the frequency and attenuate the signal with buttons and we had to calculate and all this. So it was very time consuming to do the observations. Therefore, we not always had a lot of time to process data, which led to a backlog of data that's still available. So one of our priorities right now and what we're doing is looking at all that data first, doing an inventory, okay, what do we have? Of all these observations, what observations do we actually made? And of the ones we made, which ones do we have good data from? And then upload that to a planetary database system the PDS where all the scientists can have access to it. Um, and now our, our future work is to focus on those groups of asteroids and get out more processing since we have like new scripts, new things that we can use on it. So we have we have data in Spanish, we say tela para cortar, which is like fabric to cut. We have a lot of fabric to cut there. Um, and um, one of the great things is that many of these objects can are, have been observed again by optical telescopes. So we can provide that information and even ourselves, we have in our group people that are uh, knowledgeable in photometry um, that we can compare like their data 
with what we have or we can give them our data, which is something what I'm doing in my next paper. Kind of compare how fast the rotation period from the optical observations are with what radar took. Fascinating stuff. Well, well thank you so much for, for uh, keeping a watchful eye on the skies and, and sharing us, uh, sharing your research with us. Thank you. Thank you. That was planetary scientist Luisa Fernanda Zambrano Marin. Still to come, taking the asteroid tracking to the sky. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. Earlier in the show, we heard about ground-based methods to track asteroids, but there are some limitations to looking for these things from here on Earth. Scientists say a better way is looking for them from space. One of the missions on the books is the NEO survey, which would scan the sky for potential threats to our planet. But the mission is facing a threat of its own, money. NASA cut funding for this mission in its recent budget proposal, a move advocates like the Planetary Society are calling on Congress to reverse. Here to talk more about the mission and the fight for its funding is Casey Dreyer, the Planetary Society's chief advocate and senior space policy advisor. Casey, welcome back to the show. Yeah, anytime. Casey, NASA's asteroid hunting space telescope NEO surveyor is uh, a critical mission, uh, but there are some concerns that there have been some funding cuts to it. Um, let's first begin with with the mission itself. Um, tell me a bit about a NEO surveyor. Uh, what is its objectives and, and why is this mission so important to us here on Earth? NEO surveyor is, in a sense, the keystone of any good planetary defense against, you know, asteroid impacts strategy. And that it's the sentinel that's sitting out in space looking for asteroids, comets, these hard to spot, potentially hazardous objects that could be coming our way. It's designed specifically to find these and it's designed to find them fast. So it would find, you know, asteroids that are city killer sized, 140-ish meters and larger, you know, within the next 10 years, meet this congressional mandate at a rate, you know, three times faster than we're currently finding them with ground-based telescopes. So it's designed to hunt these down, it's designed to give us a chance if they're coming our way to react to them, and it's designed to help us understand their characteristics so we can understand the giant population of these things out there even better than we do now. Mm -hmm. Casey, give me give me a sense of, of kind of our understanding of the threat that's out there. Um, you know, we don't have all of these asteroids cataloged, right? I mean, that's kind of the whole point of these space-based telescopes is to identify these possible possibly harmful asteroids that could impact us, right? I mean, how much do we really know about these threats? That's exactly right. And so, yes, we have a range of sizes of asteroids, right? The bigger they are, the fewer of them that are out there, right? It's kind of that classic size distribution. Lots of really tiny things, very few big things. Obviously, we're worried about the bigger things, right? the things that carry lots of mass and could you know, smash into us. The really big things, the, the asteroids that are, you know, kilometer-sized bigger, these are the, the end-of-all-days kind of asteroids. Those actually we found most of, more than 90% of those have been found. We're in a good position with those. It's these mid-sized ones, 140, you know, twice the size of a football field-ish. Those are the ones that we think just based on statistical modeling, 
you know, we have found maybe a third of those. And that's why these are hard to find. They're like, it's like looking for charcoal briquettes in a dark room, right? These are dark, non-reflective little block, you know, blobs of thing, you know, of, of rock just floating out around the sun. And Neo Surveyor, it's sensitive to infrared, the heat signature that these give off instead of visual light, which is what we use on the ground. We can't use infrared on the ground because the Earth's atmosphere absorbs infrared. And so we have to put something out in space. And so instead of looking for dark, you know, charcoal briquettes, we're looking for their glowing signatures of reflected sunlight against this ice cold backdrop of space. And they just pop out, you know, really much more easily. And this is, again, why we need a space telescope to do this. And we're not talking about a space telescope on the size of Hubble, right? Far from it. This is a much smaller, less than a meter sized aperture here. Uh, much more affordable. We're talking about half a billion dollars or so, you know, in, in space parlance, as many of your listeners know, that's a relative steal for the, you know, potentially avoiding a catastrophic collision with an asteroid benefit that we get as a human civilization. Mm -hmm. Casey, you mentioned that these these big asteroids, these kind of extinction level event size asteroids have been cataloged. It's these smaller ones that are are, are the issue here. You say the size of, you know, one to two football fields. That's still a significant threat, right? I mean, are, are, are you talking, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, like city destroyer sized mm -hmm. uh, objects? I mean, these, it seems like it's really important we should know where the other two thirds of these are, right? Yeah, generally, you know, it's not a bold stance to say, you know, we don't want to have a city leveled by one of these things. And that's the thing, right? It's, it's you can still have a really bad day. If you're not talking, even if you're not talking about the end of all life on Earth, if you're just, you know, quote unquote, a mere destructive, you know, nuclear blast level event, and, you know, and it's, you know, there's all sorts of problems. And, you know, even smaller, Chelyabinsk, of course, in, in 2013, that was on the order of 20 meters, right? About 60 feet across, size of a large house. And that's shattered glass. So there was a huge release of energy over a populated area, right? Thankfully, no one was killed, but a, lot, a number of people were injured. Something like this, you know, the, the, the energy release goes as, the, as a power law related to the, the mass, right? So the, the bigger it is, it's much, much more destructive just because of the amount of speed and mass that it's carrying with it. And so finding these things, yes, it's very important. I like to think of it this way, right? We've just gone through this big pandemic, obviously, or still going through it for a lot of people. And there's a lot of similarities in how we approach these types of it's a low probability but not zero. It's a, it's a potential situation. But when it does happen, like a pandemic, it's huge consequences. And so it, it's a good idea to put a little bit of preventative effort ahead of time, knowing that this is a non-zero possibility, to prepare for it, right? So in a pandemic parlance, Neo Surveyor is like having a testing regimen out there looking for heads up in case we start to get this rapidly escalating threat of an asteroid coming our way uh, from uh, from outer space, right? It's kind of like finding early signs of a viral outbreak in some place around the world that we can then prepare for, you know, to, to react to much more quickly. Something like the DART mission, which is out in space actually right now, that's going to test asteroid deflection technology. That's kind of like investing in vaccine development before you need it, right? So it's lots of similarities. And we just, again, we've gone through a pandemic we understand how disruptive that is, how consequential it is. And the, we really depended on, you know, mRNA vaccines that were had decades of research behind them that we could roll those out rapidly. Just like an asteroid, we don't want to be caught off guard. We want to have time to prepare. And now is the time to do it. You know, we don't have to throw all of our money at it. 
but it's a good idea if you, like me, are invested in the continuation of the human civilization <laughs> uh, to put in some, you know, a, a little bit of upfront cash in order to really be prepared for these types of things. Not a hard sell for me, Casey. Um, I, I would I would like to keep uh, keep my house uh, intact. So, <laughs> but but as you mentioned, I mean, right. it, it, it is such a low cost relative to other spaceflight missions, but NASA's latest budget would cut $130 million from this mission. Your organization, uh, the Planetary Society and the National Space Society, signed a joint letter asking Congress to reject these budget cuts. First, let's talk about what would this budget cut do to this mission? I mean, this is a, a substantial amount when, when you talk about the overall mission cost around $500 million, right? Yeah, it's about 75% less than was expected this year. Right. And so, you know, it takes multiple years to build a spacecraft, right? These are boutique handmade items specifically and carefully designed to do exactly what they're, you know, you don't buy a Neo Surveyor off the shelf at Walmart, right? You have to design it to and build it specifically for this one purpose. Nothing like this has ever been done before. And so last year, Congress fully funded a request of about 140 million. And the idea was that this is ramping up. You're starting to build this. You're going to launch it in 2026. You're buying flight hardware. You're ramping up your team size, you're hiring engineers, project managers, it's going through this normal process. And so it was a very big surprise earlier this year when NASA proposed its next, its upcoming budget request. And that had had this huge 75% drop. Notably, they didn't cancel it, right? So it could be worse. This isn't complete end of this mission. But when you when you cut that much money from a mission in active development, it basically throws this project into chaos. Right. They were not planning to have this little money. They were planning to grow and keep hiring engineers, designing things. You can't just turn this stuff on and on like a light bulb. And what that does is it's going to delay the launch of this mission by a number of years. It's going to very likely increase the overall cost just because they're having a lot of it's, it's just very inefficient. Right now, they have to start laying people off. They, all the flight hardware they bought may not survive, you know, may not be rated to last these extra years in order to launch. They may have to procure new flight hardware, even though they've already bought stuff, right? It just creates a lot of confusion, a lot of disruption, and it slows everything down, increases the cost. And meanwhile, we're not looking for these things, right? We have our ground-based telescopes, but we, we're delaying this process of rapidly finding near-Earth asteroids by a number of years, at least two years is what NASA says. And so it's just not smart investment. It's not a good way to spend money. It's not an efficient use of taxpayer money. And at the end of the day, you're right, it just delays the outcome that we want, which is to find things that are potentially threatening to us so we can react to them if we need to. Mm -hmm. Where did this cut come from? Well, we should be clear that this wasn't Congress proposing the cut, right? This is coming from inside the House, right? The phone call is coming from inside the House in this situation. This is NASA itself saying, we're going to cut, we're proposing to cut money from this. Congress, do you agree? And in this case, what ha what appeared to happen and, and what they kind of stated, you know, somewhat clearly, actually helpfully, right, was that the overall budget line, so, so planetary defense that funds a neo-surveyor, that budget line was kept flat from the previous year, right? Their overall program line was flat. But at the same time, what happened was the cost of Mars sample return, right? The big effort to return these collection, these uh, soil samples from Mars being collected by Perseverance, that increased in, in budget need. And also Europa Clipper, uh, this big flagship mission, 
obviously huge fans of both of these missions, uh, but these are big, expensive flagship missions. That increased in budget too, uh, they said, because of COVID uh, situation and, and other delays and disruptions. And so what happened was you had these two big projects growing in size in, in their resource needs at a flat budget line, right? So something had to give. And in this case, they don't exactly say why they chose Neo Surveyor, but that was what they chose. They said, we'll diminish this. They also canceled, of course, Mars Ice Mapper, a very, very small Mars mission uh, for NASA contribution to also save some money. But the real big chunk was Neo Surveyor. And if you add up the increases in both Mars Sample Return and Europa Clipper, it adds up to, you know, roughly 130-ish million dollars. So, and, and those were clearly identified as saying the thing. So it, it was a situation where the programmatic priorities of NASA for these projects, given a flat budget, were higher than the programmatic priorities of, of Neo Surveyor. Gotcha. Um, your letter, your joint letter to Congress calls to reject these budgets. Um, but I've, I've got to wonder, Casey, is is the fear or, or the concern that initiatives like Neo Surveyor and, and bolstering our planetary protections um, is it going to take a, a large event to happen for the priority to shift and, and for things like Neo Surveyor to get the funding that they need? I really hope not, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to avoid here. But, you know, we have a very reactive system. You know, we compare, again, you make the pandemic comparison. We were spending on the order of a few hundred million, maybe a billion a year on these national health initiatives for pandemic preparation, for uh, MR, or, you know, vaccine development, preparation for corona type viruses. And then when it hit, we ended up spending literally trillions of dollars, right, in, in mitigating uh, programs. And so you couldn't have anywhere gotten near that without the catastrophe we went through. And, you know, that's very similar to what we're facing now, though, of course, with an asteroid strike, there's not much you can do afterwards to mitigate it. You're, you're rebuilding after something like that. And what we're trying to do here, I think, and this is why I keep making the comparison. Can we use the framework of this experience that we all just went through? We put in a little bit of prevention now, you know, as we did with mRNA vaccines that clearly paid off for us. And so that's why I like to make the comparison. But again, everyone, I think, except for true misanthropes, maybe, are, are pro, let's keep civilization going. And I, it's just generating that you could, again, you can see, it's very disappointing to see, it's a very understandable bureaucratic decision, right? Even though the big picture, it's very, uh, you're playing a huge risk. You're throwing the dice. And, and most of the time, that's fine, right? It's a low risk, but the consequences of being wrong are extremely high. Half a half a billion dollars seems like a, a small price to pay for the continuity of civilization. So yes, I appreciate your efforts, Casey. <laughs> Casey Casey Dreyer is the Planetary Society's chief advocate and senior space policy advisor. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Happy to be back. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.